You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, if you have stumbled in on us today, this is your first time to be at Stonegate, you have stumbled in on part five of a set of sermons called Gospel, Greed, and Generosity, um, where we are trying to survey some of what the Bible teaches about money and possessions. And so there's 2,350 passages or verses that deal with money and possessions. So obviously we're not getting to all of them, but we're trying to survey some of the big ones. And this is where we find ourselves in Matthew 6, which is a passage here that uh, Jesus, I think, says some of the most important words about money and possessions in these four or five verses in Matthew 6. And so with that said, I, w- I want to start, uh, this is kind of an introduction to the introduction. And so I want to start just by the context of the Sermon on the Mount and specifically um, Matthew chapter six. And so this is um, where we are in Matthew six is in the middle of it's the middle chapter of a three chapter sermon by Jesus. We a lot of times you'll hear it called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, where he has gathered his disciples around and he's talking to his disciples where the crowd can hear him. And and so this is his longest sermon that that he gives. And and so in chapter six, we find ourselves in a position to where half of the chapter, this middle chapter, half of this chapter of this sermon deals with money and possessions. I think there's like 34 verses in in the chapter and like 18 of them deal with money and possessions. Some of what God thinks about, Jesus thinks about money and possessions. And so that's where we pick it up. And I want to just walk you through um, the first four verses of the chapter, because I think it addresses actually a a big misconception that is really widespread as far as how people in the church view money and possessions. And so um, look at verse two, chapter six, verse two, um, Jesus says this. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet um, before you as the hypocrites as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, I do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, so I, I think this is the, uh, a major misconception, a really unhealthy view of money and possessions that is widespread in the church. It sounds like this, that the way I operate financially should be a secret. In in other words, the the way that I spend, the way that I give, and the way that I save, that's just a between me and God thing. No one else should see that. This should be a secret issue. No, no, No one else's eyes should be on that. And I've heard that expressed in numerous ways over 11 years of ministry. Numerous ways. And so I think the general widespread but unhealthy view is, this is just a me thing. I'm the only one that needs to know about this, see this, be a, uh, it's just me. Okay, so I want to just address this and say, I think that's a really unhealthy view of money and possessions. I think it's really unhealthy. And so and a lot of people who would have that view might go to a passage like this and, and build a case for why secrecy with their finances is what God would want from them. And so I just want to address really quickly three reasons why this passage is not teaching absolute secrecy in your giving. Okay, so just three quick reasons. Number one is the context. Okay, so in this context, the problem is verse two. These people are giving for the praise and the applause and the acclaim of men. So when they give, it's not just them giving, it's them blowing a trumpet before they give. That's the problem. They've got the the trumpet out blowing it to to draw attention to their giving so they can get the praise of men. So the problem is not um, your giving being in secret or before people. The problem is your motivation. When Jesus says give in secret, he is putting a finger on their prideful motivation that is the praise of men. That's the problem of the passage. Okay, so it's not saying absolutely you should give in secret. It's saying... You you should absolutely not give for the praise of men, but for for my praise, if you're looking from God's perspective. Okay, so so number one, the context. Number two, second reason, is more context. Just keep reading in the passage, and here's what you're going to find. That if you think that you should do all of your giving in secret, it's just a you thing and nobody else. If that's your view, then you would also have to say, look at the next uh, passage down, starting in verse 5, that your praying would all have to be in secret. So, so we should know if if you want to hold fast to this, it's secret. It's just me and God thing that then you would also have to say that we should stop praying in public. No more prayers in public. That's just going to be a you in your closet with God thing. We should never do that among believers, but that's not true. 
Because what Jesus is teaching here is not absolutely praying in private, not absolutely giving in secret. He's saying that the prideful motivation is the problem. He's putting a finger on this prideful motivation where people are looking to the applause of men, the praise of men, as they pray, as they fast, and as they give. That's the issue. Okay, now just one more um, thing in there. Third reason why this is not an absolute prohibition against giving um, publicly is the early church. If you look in Acts 2... Four and five, here's what you're going to see. That the early church, their giving was done mainly in the open. Mainly in it. So so it was a public thing. They were giving to general funds where people knew. If you look at um, Acts chapter 9 with Ananias and Sapphira, everyone in the church knew exactly what they gave. So it's not an absolute prohibition. You see the early church giving in public. Okay, so I say all of that just to address that major, I think it's a really unhealthy view of money and possessions. Okay, so we talk a lot about being 100% known. 100% known. That would include your finances. That would include what, how you save, how you spend, and how you give. Okay, now, now, let me just be clear here. I'm not saying that everyone has to know about it. But I'm saying that someone other than you needs to. And, and maybe even to widen it, someone other than you or your husband and wife needs to. Right, okay, so... Here is the the dominant theme that we've seen over four weeks talking about what the Bible says about money and possessions is the Bible is really clear on this warning that money and possessions is hazardous. If you have money and possession, there is hazards that come along with that. And if you trust yourself to be good stewards of what God has entrusted to you, if you're just trusting yourself for that, I'm going to say this. I think you're foolish in trusting yourself. I think you're underestimating the potential of money and possessions to lure your heart away for you to be totally self-deceived. I think you're underestimating the power of money and possessions to, to, to the power of money and possessions to make you rationalize and justify everything you want to do and spend everything you want to do financially. I think you're underestimating the power of greed to, to help you rationalize and justify everything your flesh wants. And maybe I could say it this way. If someone else doesn't know about how you spend, about how you give and about how you save, I think it will be virtually impossible for you to actually be a good steward of what God's entrusted to you. See, so there is a vast difference between opening up your life, specifically here, your finances, so people can speak into that and giving with the prideful motivation of the praise of men. There's a vast difference between that. One is very unhealthy, praise of men. One is very healthy, getting yourself before people saying, I know I'm probably not seeing clearly here and I need help with that. That is healthy. And if you're not doing that, chances are you're not going to be a good steward with your finances. So I I just want to encourage you toward that. Not everyone needs to know, but someone does. You need someone to be able to say, you're being absolutely greedy and selfish. And if you don't have someone that can say that, that's, that's probably an issue for you. Okay, so that was all free. That was the introduction to the introduction. Now we're to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Okay, in, in verse 19, I think Jesus is about to walk us into one of the biggest problems in our culture and specifically as it deals with money and possessions. And here is the problem we're about to see addressed in Matthew 6, verse 19 and beyond. Is we live in a culture that has lost the sense of the eternal. Let me say it one more time. We live in a culture who has completely lost a sense of the fact that there is an eternity looming on the horizon. Okay, so we live in a culture that, that's lost a sense of that. It was interesting this week, I was listening to some sports talk radio. Generally, I wouldn't encourage it. It's an absolute waste of time, right? So I'm listening to it this week. And, uh, and it was so interesting in the middle of a conversation about sports, this question got asked, what happens when you die? I mean, that's a pretty weighty conversation for sports talk radio. I mean, we're talking about the Miami heat and the thunder and it's all of a sudden what happens when you die? And it was so interesting. This was a guy out of Seattle that was hosting this show. And he said, uh, well, I'll tell you exactly what happens when you die. I mean, this isn't like left a chance or like, there's not like varying opinions on this. It's real clear what happens when you die. They put you in a coffin and they bury you six feet under. That's what happens when you die. Okay, now that is the view of our culture. I mean, that is it. Okay, now I wish I could say that was just a cultural thing, but it's not just a cultural thing. 
Christians, and I'm just going to apply this specifically to American Christians. American Christians have lost their sense of the eternal. We've lost it. We've lost our sense of there's more to life than this life. We've lost our sense of this world is not our home. Okay, now, and here's kind of the catch in all this. That, um, that, that I think we would all verbally agree that we agree kind of theologically and theoretically to these things. But here's the truth. You watch the way we functionally live, and here's what it shows. That we believe, just like the sports talk guy, that when we die, we're going to be put in a coffin and buried six feet under. That's the end of it. The way we live, it, it, it gives, our, gives our beliefs away. It's showing us what we functionally believe. And I think it's interesting that this is why the Bible, over and over, God is trying to remind us that this world is not our home. Um, if you'll remember back just a couple of months ago when we were spending like three years in First Peter... Um, you, you, do you remember how first Peter starts to address us in chapter one? But you remember what he calls us exiles in, in chapter two. He calls us sojourners that you're pilgrims, that this is not your home. He's trying to make that point clear. The author of Hebrews does the same thing. Um, Paul does the same thing in, in, um, Philippians chapter three, verse 20. He says that, that your citizenship is not here. This world is not your home. Your citizenship is not here. Your citizenship is in heaven. A recreated earth, renewed and redeemed by God. That's your home, not this one. Your citizenship is not here. So there's these continual reminders. In in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul says that uh, you are ambassadors of Christ. See, if you're an ambassador, that means you're from a different country. See, there's this reoccurring theme. The Bible is trying to remind you that this world is not your home. There is more to life than this life. Okay, now let me connect the dots here. One of our biggest problems as it relates to money and possessions, one of our biggest problems is this lost sense of the eternal. There is a direct correlation between how we deal with, how we think about money and possessions and how we think about our eternal home, how we think about eternity. There is a direct correlation. And so here's what I think the way we deal about money and possessions gives away for us. In the way that we habitually think and act, I think it, it gives, especially in regards to money and possessions, I think it gives away the fact that we don't think about another home. That we don't think about eternity. That we may theoretically believe in it, but functionally it never comes into play for us. It never comes into play. I think a lot of us are living right now as if this is all there is. There is nothing more. There is no eternity. There is no resurrection. There is no like forever life with God. There there is none of that. I think our money and possessions would show that functionally that's how we think about life. So in light of that, Jesus is about to help us here. He's about to give us a sense of the eternal. He's about to weigh in real heavy on this issue to try to help you see that the way you're living now actually shapes life forever. It actually shapes it. How we deal with money and possessions actually shapes heaven for us. Okay, so in light of that, here we go. In in verse 19 through 24, uh, Jesus is going to use three metaphors. Three metaphors, and the primary issue he's addressing is this lost sense of the eternal. So so here is metaphor number one. Metaphor number one deals with treasure. Treasure. Okay, so look at it in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Okay, so, so Jesus is going to say, with your treasure, your money and possessions is the context. With your money and possessions, you can do one of two things with them. One of two things. Here is option number one. Option number one is you can lay up treasure on earth. Okay, this is one thing you can do with money and possessions. You, you can put it in a big pile, lay it up here, and enjoy it for the, for the here and now. One option you have is storing up treasure on earth. Okay, so here's the question. Two questions. Dealing with, with this idea of laying up treasure on earth. Question number one is this. What does that mean? When he says, lay, don't lay for, up for yourselves treasures on earth, what does Jesus mean by that? 
Okay, so I, I want to try to give um, an explanation of that, but it's going to take one preface. Here's the preface. When we get to Proverbs, this is going to be in the middle or late July, we're going to talk about proverbial wisdom as it relates to money and possessions. And one of the things that we're going to see in Proverbs is that God commends prudent planning. In Proverbs 6, he commends the ant for how they plan, how they store up, how they save. So, so it's prudent planning. So, so the Bible would commend that. Now, there are times, like we, we look at the rich young ruler in week one, where God goes against proverbial wisdom, like he did to the rich young ruler, and he says, give it all. I want, it all. I want you to sell everything and give it to the poor, right? So there are times that he goes against that proverbial wisdom. But in general, God commends prudent planning. Okay, so in the, when Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on, on earth, there is a difference in what he means in that and prudent planning. Prudent planning is commended. What, what he's talking about here is not prudent planning. He is talking about a way of living and a way of thinking and acting in regards to your money and possessions that is totally void of the big things. He, he's talking about a way of thinking about life, of money and possessions that is void of the fact that eternity is coming. That is void of the fact that God wants you to invest things in his kingdom causes. That is void of the fact of the resurrection of the dead. That is void of the fact that heaven is forever. So it's a way of living and thinking and planning and acting in regards to money and possessions that totally doesn't factor in, fails to factor in that eternity is on the horizon. Okay, this is what he is commanding us against in this passage. This is what he is clearly defining as sin. It's not prudent planning. It's this self-absorbed, self-focused, self-kind of motivated, idolatrous want to kind of stockpile our stuff for the here and now. This is what he's against here. This is what he is issuing a command, not a suggestion, a command and calling it sin. Okay, so let me just ask you this question in regards to money and possessions for you. If we were to look at the way you spend, the way you save and the way you give. Would, would you be guilty of this one of the way, just the way you plan failing to factor in that you may be before Jesus tomorrow, that eternity is really long, that you're about to spend forever with God. Does it fail to factor in the kingdom causes and plans and purposes of God? So this is what he's commanding against here. Okay, second question. So the first question is, what does he mean by that? And the second question is, why is that a bad idea? And I, just two quick reasons. The first reason it's a bad idea is because earthly treasures do not last. They don't last. This is the problem with earthly treasure is that they're temporal. Moth and rust are going to destroy them and thieves are going to break in and steal. So whatever, think about the last thing you bought. Whatever the last thing is, here's what you need to know about that thing. It doesn't matter if it's a car, if it's a home, or if it's a... gadget at Walmart. Here's what you need to know about it. There is a coming day where it's going to be destroyed or it's going to be stolen. One of the two. You give it long enough and that's what's going to happen with everything you own right now. Everything you own, one of those two things, be destroyed by moth and rust or one day be stolen. That that is the future fate of every possession. This is the problem with money and possessions. Every earthly treasure is that they just don't last. But here's the second thing about them. Reason why I'm storing up earthly treasure is bad, a bad idea. Is that earthly treasure creates anxiety. So this kind of walks us into the rest of Matthew 6, where he's about to address anxiety in the context of money and possessions. See, when, when you buy anything, we'll just say, call it a car. But when you buy a car, you know you don't just buy a car, right? You also buy insurance. Why? Because moth and rust are coming after that thing. That's why. You're going to probably have a thief at some point look at your car lustfully. That's why you get insurance. Because moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. And and see, because everything is breaking down and deteriorating and depreciating, the more you own, the more anxious you're going to be. Because as soon as you buy something, now you've got to protect it. Now you've got to figure out a way to keep it from breaking down, keeping somebody from, from stealing it. See, more things typically equals more anxiety. Because we've got more things to protect, a bigger, bo- a bigger pile to kind of create a fence around. So more things generally equals more anxiety. Okay, and, and we talked about this a few weeks ago. But if money and possessions has the power to make you anxious, now think about that. If money and possessions has the power to make you anxious, 
That's a great indicator that greed has gripped your heart. See, if it can make you anxious, money is not just money and possessions are not just possessions. They're more than that to you. So see, if money and possessions can make you anxious, it's a great indicator that greed, money and possessions, an inordinate desire for, for material things has gripped your heart. So it's a bad idea because they don't last and because they create anxiety. So that's option number one. You can lay up treasure on earth. Here is option number two, the contrast. Option number two goes like this, verse 20. You can lay up treasure in heaven. Okay, so Jesus is against option number one. He's commanding for option number two. He's saying one is very unwise. Option number two is very wise. It would be smart for you to do this. Okay, so a couple of questions that relates to to this idea of laying up treasures in heaven. Number one is what does he mean when he says, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven? Okay, so there's a contrast in this verse, right? The contrast. So part one is, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. That is a planning that fails to factor in God's kingdom purposes, his plans and purposes here on earth. It fails to factor in that there is eternity looming on the horizon. It fails to factor in that God has entrusted to you certain things that he wants invested in his things, in his agenda. It fails to factor all of that in. That's the problem with laying up earthly treasure. Laying up treasure in heaven is the contrast to that. It's actually planning in such a way. It's actually acting and and working financially in such a way that we are factoring in God's kingdom purposes, his plans and and his wants and his agenda here on earth. It's it's playing with our money, his money that he's entrusted to us for those ends. It's investing what he has entrusted to us like that in ways that would please him. And that really this takes us back to Matthew 25. Talked about this last week, the parable of talents. It's how we lay up treasure in heaven or what he's talking about here is taking what he has entrusted to us. Time, talents, right? So your capacities and your abilities that he's given you, treasure, your money and possessions. We could even say truth, the gospel that we're a steward of. It's taking all of those things and it's making sure that we are investing those things into God's agenda here. Okay, this is what he's calling us toward. But it goes one step even beyond that. Because in this passage, he's actually incentivizing us. He's saying that when we do the Matthew 25, we're a good steward thing. As we invest our time and talents and treasures and truth, as we invest all of all those things in his purposes and his plans, it's actually doing something for us. It's actually a way of laying up treasures in heaven. Now you see in the connection there. He's saying that when you're a good steward, when you're a faithful steward of what I've entrusted to you, God is saying, when you invest my stuff into my agenda, here's what you need to know about that. That that is securing you for you something in heaven. That you are, by doing that, laying up treasure in heaven. Do you see the logic there? Okay, so let me say it this way. This passage is not about renouncing all of your money and possessions. It is about relocating your money and possessions in a place that will actually last. That's what the passage is about. It's not about renunciation. It is about relocation. It's about storing up heavenly treasure that will last forever. Okay, do, do you see where he's going here? So maybe I could say it this way. You, you could decide in light of this passage that, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to sell all my possessions. I'm going to give it to a, a poor person and I'm going to take a vow of poverty for the rest of my life. You, you could say that and, and you could do that and you would absolutely be missing the point of this passage. This passage is not just about renunciation. It is about accumulation. It is about relocating our treasure to heaven. That's the point of the passage. So I want you to see this clearly. He's saying that the way that you steward your finances now actually has a way of enlarging and and enlivening your experience later. You can lay up for yourselves heavenly treasure. This is where he's going. That's what it means. We invest it in kingdom causes. And when we invest it in kingdom causes, those things become eternal. Those things become things that we can enjoy forever. Okay, now, um, second question. So what does it mean that that's what it means? Storing up earthly treasure versus heavenly treasure, kingdom causes, and it turns into heavenly treasure. Okay, second question is, okay, so what are these treasures in heaven? Like, I think that's the next logical question here. So you're saying, Jesus is saying here that we can lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Well, what in the heck does that mean? 
Hey, what are treasures in heaven? Okay, so um, I want to give you the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll just kind of keep it within this little context here. Go back to verse or chapter 5. Flip back a couple of pages. Chapter 5, verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 11. And here's what we see Jesus saying. Chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So it's a person that is suffering because they're following Jesus. Okay, so he's saying, blessed is that person. He goes on, verse 12. And he tells this person, you can rejoice and be glad. Why can you rejoice and be glad when you're suffering for the cause of Jesus? Here's why. For great is your reward in heaven. Now, I take that to mean, Jesus is saying this, that there is a way in which suffering for the cause of Jesus now, in this life, enlarges your experience of the next life, of heaven. That suffering now enlarges your experience later. I think this is exactly what Paul is teaching in 2 Corinthians 4.17 when he says this light momentary affliction, like these things I'm now going through, this suffering, is preparing for me, building for me, making for me uh, an eternal weight of glory. So, So he's saying that suffering now actually has a way of enlarging your experience later on. So that there's a reward associated with suffering now. Okay, let's keep going and look at Matthew chapter 6. Um, look at 1 um, through 4 here. Look at what it says. Starting in verse 1, Matthew 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So you've got the idea of reward that pops back up in Matthew 6, verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Their reward is the praise of of men. He goes on, verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So something about generosity... And the way we we deal with money and possessions is rewarded by God. He goes on to say in in, in verse 6, so come down, skip verse 5, verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So there's something about the way we pray that enlarges our experience later on. Prayer now enlarges our experience later. Um, He goes down, look at verse 18. This is in the context of fasting and not fasting for the praise of men. But he goes on here that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So there is something about the disciplines, about about doing things before God for the praise of God, not the acclaim and and the praise of men. There's something about that that God says when you do it that way with the right motivation, the right things for the right motivation. That, that you will be rewarded for that. That I'm going to smile really well on you later on. That, that, that your experience of heaven will be enlarged by that. Okay, so, so let me just be clear here. That heaven's not determined by our actions. But our experience of heaven in some part is determined by it. Because this is what he's saying here. That in some way... How how you live now, you being a faithful steward now, enlarges our experience of heaven later on. Okay, so so let me try to to maybe break it down this way. That that life is linear for everyone in the room. That we are born, and for all of us in the room, there will be a day when we find ourselves before King Jesus. That's you, that's me, that's everyone. That's believer, and that is non-believer. That's Christian and non-Christian. That is all of us in the room. Okay, now I think a lot of passages teach this. I'm going to give you a list of them here and you can email me later and I'll send them to you. Romans 14, 10 through 12 teaches that. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, both of those in the context of believers. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 in the context of believers. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 in the context of believers. Sunday standing before God. Um, Revelation 20, 12 through 13, same teaching. And this is even Matthew um, chapter 25, verse 19. He entrusts his servant something. And then there's a day where it says that the master will come back to settle accounts. All the same idea. All saying that there will be a day where we stand before Jesus. Okay, now I want to try to break down the difference between an unbeliever standing before Jesus and a believer before God. When an unbeliever stands before God on that day, when God is going to settle accounts, 
it will be a judgment of condemnation. See, when we stand before God, if, we're, if we've never put our faith in Jesus, trusted and treasured him, there will be no room for mercy in that moment, only justice in that moment. And that is a hard truth of the Bible, that in that moment for an unbeliever, it's a judgment of condemnation. That we are forever separated from God, forever, like eternally separated from God. So for unbelievers, it's a judgment of eternal condemnation. Okay, but for believers, it will be a judgment of commendation. So unbelievers, it's condemnation. For believers, it's commendation. Okay, so for those who put their faith in Jesus, trust and treasure Jesus, here's what you need to know. This is the great news of the gospel. And we sang about this just a minute ago, that, that Jesus stood in your place condemned. See, he took all the condemnation that your sin deserved and he absorbed every last drop of that. Every last drop of the anger of God the Father over our sin. Every last drop of the wrath of God the Father over our sin. Jesus drank it to the last drop. This is the great news of the gospel. For, for a believer in Jesus, there will be no condemnation before God. So see, when, when you think about sinning before Jesus someday, there should be no thought of fear in any one of us in the room. Because there is no condemnation to be had. There is just delight to be had. So this is the great news of the gospel. But that does not mean that in some way God cannot reward faithfulness. That he cannot commend us. This is what 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says when it says that we're going to be commended in that last day. That, that God will, will look at our faithfulness and say, well done, I, I, I'm going to entrust this to you now. This is, this is this idea of this judgment of condemnation. There will be a day where God will look at you and, and test your faithfulness and say, in light of your faithfulness, let me give this to you here. Okay, now, um, Jonathan Edwards, and I tried to track down the source of this last night, so I think it's him, but I couldn't find it last night. But even if it's not, I think it works. Um, but I'm pretty sure it's Jonathan Edwards who uses the imagery of a boat to describe eternal rewards. And so, so he talks about this idea that, that we're all going to have varying sizes of boats in heaven. Your boat may be big, my boat may be small, or vice versa. We're all going to have these varying sizes of boats. But here's the thing. Every boat will be packed full of heaven's cargo of joy. Every boat will be. So it doesn't matter if you have a small boat or a big boat. Every boat is going to be brimming with joy, full to the max of joy. There will be no joyless sons and daughters of God in heaven. But, the, but various boats, and this is kind of the idea of eternal rewards, the bigger your boat is, the more of that cargo of joy that you can carry in heaven. So in this way, your faithfulness now, God in, like your faithfulness now is in some way determines your experience and how large your experience in heaven will be. Your faithfulness now enlivens and enlarges that experience. This is what he means when he says you can lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You can lay up for yourself a larger experience of heaven. Okay, so in this passage, he is dealing primarily with money and possessions. So, so we've seen Matthew 5, in the way you suffer, can enlarge your experience of heaven. Matthew 6, in the way we pray, the way we fast, all those things can. But, but here's what he's saying in this passage specifically, in Matthew six nineteen and beyond. That the, in the way that you handle your money and possessions, in the way you steward what God has entrusted to you financially, that, that in part, your experience of heaven is going to be determined by that. In part, your experience of heaven, how big the boat is that's carrying the cargo of joy, is determined by how you deal faithfully now with what God has entrusted to you. Okay, this is how we lay up treasures in heaven. Now, then comes the question of what, okay, so what are the treasures? So what is, okay, so I get the fact that we can lay them up, I get all that. So what are they? And I'm just going to give two big categories. Big categories. The, the first one I love, the second one I'm kind of growing to see more of. So here's the first one, big category. Is, is Jesus is the reward of heaven. Can we all agree with that? Jesus is the reward of heaven. So there is a way in which how you faithfully deal with what God has entrusted to you now is enlarging your capacity, your heart's capacity to enjoy Jesus later on. How we deal with what God has entrusted to us now is enlarging our capacity to experience more joy in Jesus later. Okay, so let me give, um, I, I was reading in uh, 
in Wayne Grudem's systematic theology last night on the idea of heaven. And, and let me just give you his, his view of, of heaven here. I think just allow this to just sit and simmer over your heart. I think it'll be really encouraging for you just to realize that heaven is about the presence of God primarily. Okay, here's what he says. He's been talking about um, all the beauty that will be in heaven. And then he says this, but more important than all the physical beauty of the heavenly city, more important than the fellowship we will enjoy with all God's people from all nations and all periods in history, more important than reigning over God's kingdom, more important by far than any of these will be the fact that, that we will be in the presence of God and enjoying unhindered fellowship with him. Our greatest joy will be in seeing the Lord himself and in being with him forever. When John speaks of the blessing of the heavenly city, the the culmination of those blessings come in this short statement. They shall see his face. That's the culmination of heaven. They shall see his face. Revelation 22, 4. When we look into the face of our Lord and he looks back to us with infinite love, we will see in him the fulfillment. Listen to this. We will see in him the fulfillment of everything that we know to be good and right and desirable in the universe. In the face of God, we will see the fulfillment of all the longings we have ever had to know perfect love, to know perfect peace and joy and to know truth and justice and holiness and wisdom and goodness and power and glory and beauty. As we gaze into the face of our Lord, we will know more fully than ever before that in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what heaven's about primarily. And the way you steward what God is entrusting to you now enlarges your experience of that joy. Okay, now that's one category. Here's the other category, broad category. I'm just going to call it various others. So it seems to me when I read the Bible that that the Bible would also um, say that God would reward us with other things beyond that. So so I'll just kind of list a few here. I think um, possessions is a part of that. Um, James 1, 12 says something about the crown of life. 2 Timothy 4, 8, the crown of righteousness. So it seems in some way that there are rewards of possessions in heaven. Um, a place. Um, John 14, 1 through 4, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It would seem that in some way we're rewarded with a place. This is Jonathan Edwards' kind of imagery of a boat. Okay, so in some way we're prepared a place in heaven. And I would even say power. Um, this is Luke 19, 11 through 27, the parable of the menace, where, where it says that God entrusts some with 10 cities, some with five, that, that in some way God entrusts us with power and authority and responsibility. Okay, so here's our problem with heaven. One of these days we're going to do a series on this. I think this is really good to think about. So I think a lot of us, our problem with heaven is that when we think of heaven, we think, okay, so we're all assigned like this one little cloud somewhere up there. And we've probably got a harp that we'll be playing. And we probably got a row because we're always going to be singing in the choir for the rest of eternity. Now, if you're wired like me, that sounds more like hell than heaven. Okay, I'm just going to be honest. I, I don't know that I'm overly interested in a cloud and a robe and singing in the choir all day. Okay, but see, this is, this is the issue. See, when we think of heaven, it's, it's like this mystical, weird thing. That when the Bible talks about heaven, it's earthy. In Revelation 21, it's seen as, as a city, a new Jerusalem coming down to a renewed and redeemed earth. It's earthy. So if you want a place to start thinking about heaven, this is your best place to start thinking about it. Think about the best of what life is right now. The best of it. Not the worst, but just the best of what life is. And now picture that without the influence of sin and the curse. And that would be a great place to start with heaven. It's earthy. So that means there's going to be work and there's going to be worship and there's going to be people and there's going to be, you live in a place, don't you? There's going to be a place and we're going to be trusted with varying levels of responsibility and authority. But it's an earthy thing. It's not just some mystical kind of thing out there somewhere. It's earthy. You've got a real body, a real place you're living. That's the picture of heaven. And so I think in light of that, it would be right to say that, that, that there's various others rewards that come along with our faithfulness now. That God will get to say one day, I commend you because of your faithfulness now. Now here, enjoy this here. Okay, so the third question. So, so that was the treasure issue. What are they? The third question is, how do we lay up treasure in heaven? Okay, so I think this is the idea. The, this passage is teaching. The way that you lay up treasure in heaven is by denying yourself the temporal little comforts and pleasures of this life. 
For, for everything that you say, I'm going to invest this thing that God has given me into God's agenda. Here's what you're doing with that. You have just made that thing immortal in a way. Eternal. You get to now enjoy whatever you just invested in the kingdom of God. You now get to enjoy that for forever. So you've got this option. Either I'll experience it, enjoy it now in this short temporal life, or I'll get to enjoy it forever, forever in heaven. Like those are the two options you have here. Okay, now I think this is part of what Paul is teaching in 1 Timothy 6. Now, this is, I'm going to put this up on the screen for you because I think it's a parallel passage here. And it gives some light into what it means or how we lay up treasure in heaven. Okay, so here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19. Paul is talking to the rich. If you have a house, if you own a car, if you're probably an American, you would probably fit into this category. This would be nine out of, probably 99 out of 100 of us that would fit in a room like this. You're in the category of what the Bible would consider rich. Now, in light of that, listen to what he says. This is how you lay up treasure in heaven. They are to do good. He's saying, now, let me remind you, this is what you're to do here. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. So if you want treasure in heaven, this is how, this is how it comes. You be rich in good works. He goes on to say this, to be generous. So that means you need to be a good steward of what God has entrusted to you. That if it's all terminating on you, that's a problem for you eternally. So they are to be good, uh, to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And then he goes on. Now look at what those things do for you. Verse 19. Thus, or in light of that. Okay, so this is what it creates. By doing that, storing up treasure for yourself as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, in the way that you steward your money, possessions, and now investing them into the kingdom of God for every temporal sacrifice that you make, Jesus is saying this, you are laying yourself up a treasure in heaven. That's what you're doing. Every time you sacrifice, you can bank on, it's going into, an, you're relocating that treasure into an eternal location. Okay, now listen to Randy Alcorn as he addresses this, this idea in these passages and this thought. He said this, be on the screen for you. Christians throughout the ages have taken these passages literally and have been, listen to what it's produced, and have been far less serious than we are about earthly treasure and far more serious about heavenly treasure. See, this is the problem we have. We've lost the sense of the eternal. You go back several centuries ago and you've got Christians who are much more concerned about heavenly treasures than they are temporal earthly ones. But we have switched that around. He goes on to say and give this illustration. John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress from an English prison cell to which he had been condemned for unlicensed preaching of the gospel. This is how he interpreted the words of Christ in Matthew 6 and Paul in 1 Timothy 6. He said this, whatever, this is how you lay up treasure in heaven. He's answering what good thing you do for him if done according to the word. So if you invest into the kingdom cause of God with the right motive, you start doing that. And here's what happens. That is laid up for you as a treasure in chest and coffers to be brought out, to be rewarded before both men and angels to your eternal comfort. Because this is the big idea of the passage. You can have your stuff now for a fleeting few seconds, or you can have it forever. You invest it into the kingdom causes of Jesus, and you get it forever. I, um, we're encouraging everyone in our church to try to read the treasure principle this summer. If you've got one book on the list, get that book on the list this summer. We want all of us to read that together. And, and not to steal the thunder of the book, but here is the treasure principle. This is, this is the book in one couple of phrases here. Um, the, the, the treasure principle is, is that you cannot take anything with you, but you can send it on ahead. That's the idea. That's the whole premise of the book. You can't take anything with you. Everything you have now, moth and rust destroys, thieves break in and steal. Everything you invest into the kingdom cause of, of Christ, you're, you're sending ahead of you. So if we just take our imagery of the boats, I think this could be some of our experience that we're going to be um, walking down the boat dock trying to find our boat, right? And we're seeing all these yachts. We're seeing some nice bass boats. We're seeing all this stuff. And we get to one that looks like a kayak. And, and it's got our name on it, right? And, and we look at the guy building it saying, okay, now what is the deal here? Why do I have a kayak and these guys have yachts? And I think it would be right in light of Matthew 6 and 1 Timothy 6 for that person to look back at you and say, listen, man, I'm doing the best I could with what you sent me. <laughs> a kayak is what you sent. 
So this is the idea that your stewardship now enlarges your experience of heaven later. Okay, so so last question. Why should I lay up treasure in heaven? And let me just give a few quick reasons for that. Number one, heavenly treasure will last. Okay, so Jesus is not saying don't worry about treasure. He's saying invest, like build your treasure in the place that it won't be lost, but that it will actually last for eternity. That's the point. Is that when you invest into heavenly treasure, when you put your money there, you get to enjoy that forever. Everything you have now is temporal and fleeting. There's going to be a moment where you leave it behind. Everything you invest into the kingdom cause of Jesus, his plans and purposes, you get to enjoy forever. It will last forever. So, so in that sense, it just, it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, I, I think if we were to sit down before financial planners, here's probably what they would tell you first. Okay, so we need to start thinking about what, where, you, where you want to be in 30 years from now. Like what you want to have stored up in 30 years. So let's start there and then we'll backtrack out and make a plan. But can I just encourage you to allow Jesus to be your financial planner for just a minute? See, at the end of the day, in light of eternity, there's no difference in planning three minutes out, three months out, three years out, or 30 years out. Do you know that? See, what Jesus is telling you here is you need to be planning 30 million years out. And you need to be investing your money and your possessions in ways that pay you dividends for eternity, not just the next 30 years. Do you see what he's saying? You need to have that sort of a long-term perspective on this thing. So heavenly treasure will last. Number two is that it's logical. Why should we store up treasure in heaven? It's really, I mean, he's just appealing to logic here. This, you don't have to be a rocket science to figure this out. One, you get to enjoy for this short little time. The other, you get to experience forever. If you really believe heaven is your home, if you really believe eternity is coming, if you really believe that you're about to experience forever in heaven, then it makes perfect sense to forego some pleasure now to invest in pleasure forever. It makes sense to do that. To enlarge in your experience of forever. Like this is where Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, I think gives just a spot on illustration of this. He says, can you imagine yourself in the Confederate South back in the days of the Civil War? And you're a northerner and you've come down to the South and you've amassed all this Confederate money. So you've got all this Confederate money that you've piled up. It's in your house and in your possession. But you hear word that the war is about to end. And when the war ends, all of your Confederate money is about to be as worthless as a piece of paper. So whatever it was worth, it just crumbled in value. And he's saying, in light of that, what would you do? And, And the answer is really logical and simple. You know what you'd do? You would get as much of that Confederate currency transferred over into U.S. dollars as possible. So that when the war ended, you still have value. Like you still have something. You still have some treasure there. And this is what Jesus is saying here. There is a day coming soon where you are about to lose everything that you consider wealth and valuable now. Everything is going to be lost. And so you've got, a, you've got a decision to make. Do I keep hoarding the Confederate money that's about to be worthless or do I transfer it over? Do, do, I, do I put it into a different currency, a heavenly currency, so that it will actually be a value later on? See, that's your option. You, you either take your Confederate money or you get it into U.S. dollars where it will last forever. See, it's logical in that way. And fourthly, or, yeah, fourthly, or actually thirdly, he, he says this, verse 21. That your heart follows your treasure. Look at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So if you want a reason why you should invest into kingdom causes, here's the reason. Your heart will always follow your money. So I think that you can really kind of take what he's saying here in verse 21 in two parts. The first part is this. What you spend your money on is a sure indicator of what it is that you treasure and really value. Okay, now I want you to look at me. Everyone, I want you to look at me for just a second here. What you can spend your money on effortlessly shows you what you really value. See, the reason that you can spend it effortlessly on that is because you've convinced yourself that that is where real value is. So if, if we take a hobby, maybe it's golf for you, maybe it's hunting and fishing, whatever your thing is, maybe, maybe it's crafting, maybe it's the next thing on Pinterest. I don't know what your deal is. But whatever you can effortlessly spend your money on is showing you what your heart values. It's a sure indicator of where your heart is. But he's saying more than just the indicator piece. He's saying that your heart will actually follow your money. That it's a sure indicator of where your heart will be. See, generosity, where you spend money, it shapes your affections. 
It shapes them. So if you're spending your money on your hobby, you know what you're shaping your affection to? Your hobby. If you're spending money on the kingdom of God, you know what you're shaping your affection to? The king. If you're, if you're giving your money for gospel expansion, you know what you're shaping your heart toward? The gospel. See, whatever, wherever you spend your money, it's shaping your affection. So see, if you were to say, you know what, I, I would love to have a bigger heart for adoption. Here would be the first thing I would tell you to do. You need to find some families who are wanting to adopt and you need to give sacrificially and generously to them. And you know what you're going to find in a matter of moments? That your heart really li- loves adoption. Your heart really loves it. If you're to say, I really want uh, my heart to love gospel expansion. It's real simple. Start giving to the things that are expanding the gospel and your heart is going to love the mission of God because your heart always follows your treasure. See, the reason some of us are so caught up in in hobbies and just stuff is because that's where our money flows effortlessly and we're shaping our affection to that thing. So your heart always follows your treasure. Okay, and we're going to kind of land the plane here with these last two metaphors. In verse um, 22, um, Jesus gives the metaphor of the eye. And, and let me just break down what he's talking about here in the healthy, the unhealthy eye, that whole thing. Um, here, here's what he's saying. I, I'm going to give you a metaphor to make the point of the metaphor. Um, we have three kids in our house, four, two, and one. And it's amazing to me how <laughs> I can predict the future with our <laughs> kids. They're really predictable. <coughs> They're really predictable in some ways. I can't predict everything. But I can predict some things. I'll just give you an illustration of this. <clears throat> I can predict exactly what Caleb is about to do at any given second of time. And, it, and it's, this, it's this simple. All I have to do is know what he's looking at. If his heart, or if his, if his eyes are on his little two-foot-tall fishing pole, got a little redfish on it, spends hours in the backyard throwing that thing around, if his, heart, if his eyes are looking at that fishing pole, here's what I know. He is about to go get the fishing pole and throw it around the backyard. See, whatever his eye is fixed on, it's, it's telling me what the future holds for him. It's showing me where he's going in life. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, your eye does that for you. When it's talking about a healthy eye in verse 22, it's talking about a single eye, a focused eye, an eye that is solely on the causes of Jesus. And when it's talking about a bad eye, it's the contrast. It's a wicked eye. It's a duplex eye, an eye that's got all of these other causes that it's concerned with. And Jesus is really just offering a warning in this, in this metaphor. He's saying that if your eye is duplex, if you've got a variety of things that you are centered on, that you are looking at, that you're con- chiefly concerned with, if, if that's you, then the direction of your life is going in a really dark place. But if your eye is single, if it's healthy, if it's good, then the direction of your life is going in a really great place. It's just a warning to say, you better pay attention to your eye. And see, here's the problem with some of us in the room, me and you included, is some of us have really bad eyes. I love Lamar Anderson right now. Some of us have really bad eyes. Some of us have eyes that are duplex. They're not singular. They're not, uh, they're not single in their focus. See, this is our issue. This is his warning for us. And then you've got this last one in verse 25, this metaphor of the masters. Or verse 24, I'm sorry. He says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He's just making a real simple point here. Your heart only has room for one throne. Do you know that? Only one. It has one seat in it, one king in it. And either that king in this context will be either God or it will be money, but it cannot be both. See, one of those is going to be the servant of the next. And one of my fears when you read that passage, I think it's easy to think like this. Well, I don't despise God, so surely I'm good. Like, I don't hate God, so surely I'm all right here. But that word despise, here's what that word means. It means when you compare this thing to something else, something else is just of little value. Just of little value. So see, when, when money and possessions are in the throne of our heart, when they, when they have assumed the kingship of our heart, here's what everything else does. Everything else is a servant to that. Everything else seems insignificant to this thing of money and possessions. And tell me how many of us are living right there. That this is the significant thing, what we can acquire, what we can have. 
But, but see, when, when that is the most significant thing, when that thing has become the Lord of your life, everything else is insignificant. God is just really small to you. See, it's not that you hate him. It's just that you think really small thoughts of him. He's just real peripheral. Everything else is important. This is just way down here on the list. This is just one among many insignificant things in our life. But see, here's the good news is when Jesus is, is enthroned as the king of our heart, when he, when he is actually sitting in the, the place of priority in our heart, you know what happens to everything else? It becomes small and insignificant. And see, when Jesus is actually enthroned in our heart, do you, do you know what money becomes? Listen to this. Just money. Just money. You know what possessions become? Just possessions. Nothing more. They have no sway over us. They have no ability to make us... They're just, it's just money. It's just possessions. And can I just say, the thing I'm praying for you and I is that money would just be money. Possessions would just be possessions. But that only happens when Jesus is prized and prioritized as the possession. Okay, we're done with, uh, with this. Um, a couple of, this was back in first Peter when we were in first uh, Peter chapter four, I put a long, um, line up here. It's a long rope and the rope was supposed to symbolize eternity. It was 30 feet long. And obviously it was a poor representation of eternity because eternity is forever. So it would take like a forever long rope to illustrate that, but just work with me. So, so we have this long rope and at the front of this rope representing eternity. And at the front of this rope, I just taped some blue tape right on the front, maybe an inch of this 30 long a uh, 30 foot long rope. What was this? This little blue sliver um, at the front. And that's the dot of your life. So you've got this whole line here representing eternity. And we've got this small little sliver at the front that is your few short, unpredictable and fleeting years here on earth. And I really just gave that illustration to, to bring up this crazy reality that it's, it's just insane how many of us, me included, are living for the dot. In light of we have got the line to enjoy. See, I mean, we should be thinking in terms of how would I maximize forever? But all, we're insane. All we can think about is how can I maximize the temporal, the here and now, this short little blue dot at the front. I mean, would we not all say it's insane to live for the dot in light of the line? We would all say that. But yet money and possessions, how we think about them, how we habitually use them shows that we think much more about that dot than the line. If I have a hope and a prayer for you and I, it's that God would reawaken us to this reality. Heaven is long. Eternity is real. And the way we live now actually shapes that future. Amen. Let's pray together. Let me give you just a second to, to sit under that and to allow the Spirit of God to imprint upon your soul the things that were helpful and to wipe away those things that, uh, that weren't helpful this morning. And if you're kicking the tires on, um, on Jesus, and I just want to remind you that for all unbelievers, life is linear for all of us. For believer, or unbelievers, non-Christians, people who haven't trusted and treasured Jesus, that that day when we stand before Jesus, it's a judgment of condemnation. But, but here's the good news. It doesn't have to be that for you. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has fully paid the price of your sin. He stood condemned in your place so that you would not have to stand condemned before Jesus one day. And so I just want to beg you, don't delay that. If you're kicking the tires, don't delay that. It is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. And it's important to make it now. Jesus stands ready and willing to say, that is the great news of the gospel. And for believers in the room, I mean, I just want to remind you that it's, it's a judgment of commendation where, where Jesus gets to look at his sons and daughters and heap condemnation on them, or commendation on them um, based on their faithfulness. And so my hope for you and me is that we would be found faithful, that we would be a people who take what God has entrusted to us and we are serious about our stewardship of that. We are deathly serious about it. That we have a view of eternity that says, I, I would rather forego temporal pleasures now so I can have them for eternity later. 
And, and so, God, I pray for good help in that. God, I pray that your spirit would give us eyes that see that, a heart that would submit to that, a life that would live in light of that. And so, so God, will you help us? God, we pray for great help. I know that it's going to take a great work of grace to, to knock us out of where we're living right now, to, to awaken us to the reality of the eternal. And, and so, God, I pray that by your spirit that you would do that for us. And it's in your great and glorious and good name that we pray this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.